Boys and girls, your attention, please. First of all, I'd like to make a little statement. Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. Once you learn the basic rules, it isn't really so complicated, is it? Good manners make good first impressions. It's a simple enough matter to give people you meet plenty of room to pass. Try to understand another person's viewpoint. That's a rather simplified suggestion of a complex mental process. But you get the idea. Hi, I'm Aaron Ferguson, audio producer of the Social Exchange Podcast. Welcome back to our series titled Where the Story Meets Pain. This is Episode 2, Drug Deaths. So we're challenging and perhaps even expanding on the standard story behind what we are calling an opioid crisis. The story, in short, is that there is an addiction crisis and that pharmaceutical industries, prescribing doctors, and narcotic drugs are to blame. Last week, we tackled the first of those claims, that there is an addiction crisis in the first place. If you haven't heard it yet, you may want to go back and listen, but you're welcome to join now and I'll try to recap. We heard from a variety of addiction experts who say addiction is not quite what we think it is, that it's not a brain disease, and that there's no chemical draw from drugs that has the power to make us addicted. Then we left off with this important piece of the puzzle from editor and columnist of Reason magazine, Jacob Sullum, that the people dying of what are called opioid-related deaths are actually either dying from a mixture of prescription drugs, not pain pills themselves, or sometimes the cause of death was only assumed to have been opioid-related. That is, the cause of death was never technically examined, but it seemed to have all the markings of a death related to opioids, so it was flagged as such. Today, we'll follow this thread further. The epidemiology of drug deaths. That is, is it possible that what we're calling opioid overdoses are not quite what we think? Later on, we'll hear from pain patients who have been directly affected by the policies implemented in response to this issue. We turn now to Jacob Solom for part two of our interview. Again, if you missed episode one, I suggest you turn to the last six minutes of that episode for part one. Here's Jacob talking a bit more about the epidemiology of drug deaths. If you want to go insane, delve into the CDC's uh numbers. Now, it, you know, it's not all their fault because they're collecting data from all over the country, different, different jurisdictions, um, some of which have like actual medical experts doing this stuff. Others have, you know, uh, appointed or elected medical examiners, um, or, I mean, coroners uh, uh, who are making these judgments. Um, and some jurisdictions are, uh, for example, New York City has one of the best systems for recording uh, deaths involving drugs. Mm-hmm. Some, so some jurisdictions are very good about it, and they will look at any given person, look at all the different uh, things you might have in a system, and try to figure out, right, was this due to one drug in particular? Was it due to a mixture of drugs? 
in New York City, they find 97% of what you, what people call drug overdoses involve mixtures of drugs, right. right? So you're talking about a heroin overdose. It can be very misleading because maybe, maybe, uh, not only heroin was involved, but also alcohol or also benzodiazepines, um, or other depressants or cocaine, which, which seems to be a particularly dangerous combination. And you'll often see with deaths of celebrities that are attributed to heroin that it was actually heroin with cocaine. Um, uh, sometimes it, it's several different things at once. Um, so, uh, if you have, um, you know, a, a record for a particular death from a rural, uh, county out in the middle of the country, and they say this was, that was caused by heroin, you don't really know what they're basing that on. Whether, what, both that you don't know the toxicological basis and you don't know whether, you know, what circumstances are they looking at. If you find somebody with needle in his arm, maybe you just automatically assume it's heroin without doing any kind of tests. Uh, you find him with an empty bottle of, you know, uh, a prescription painkiller, and you, you say that that was the cause, but maybe it was more complicated than that. So yeah, there are problems with all of these numbers um, in terms of attributing uh, deaths to particular drugs. But what uh, clearly seems to be the case is that whatever people are doing, <laughs> it is it's more dangerous than what they used to be doing because larger a larger percentage of them are dying. Um, so either the drugs themselves are getting da- more dangerous, and, and you know we can talk about reasons why heroin might be getting more dangerous, or the people who are using them are are less able to adjust to the dangers of these drugs, or there might be more dangerous kinds of combinations going on. Um, maybe you know benzodiazepines are have become uh, you know people are more likely to use benzodiazepines in combination with opioids, which can be very dangerous than they used to be. Uh, or larger doses of them, right? I mean, there are all kinds of possibilities, but, but, that, but if you're trying to figure out why is it that so many people are dying compared to what used to be the case, you know, a decade ago or even a few years ago, um, you have to try to get a handle on what's really going on, uh, and what's causing these deaths. The most obvious reason why heroin looks so much more deadly nowadays than it did just a few years ago, um, is that uh, a lot of it is mixed with fentanyl. Right. Uh, and so that these deaths that are attributed to heroin, um, it may be a combination of heroin and fentanyl. It may be that the per- people close to the person who died thought he was using heroin, so that's what was, was put, went down on the record. Um, but, uh, you know, there was actually fentanyl that he didn't expect. It was more powerful than he expected. Um, and, and that's the reason he's dead. What is really killing people here are, again, mixtures of drugs or what we are calling heroin overdoses. As you may have guessed, the deaths that we assume are just too large of a dose of heroin, what we're calling heroin overdoses, are not always, if ever, that. They are mixtures of heroin and other sedatives, or heroin and cocaine, and in the last few years, more often than not, people are dying by taking a drug that is said to be heroin while unknowingly they're really taking a drug called fentanyl. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin. At this point, you might call this a drug poisoning rather than an overdose. Think about it. People think that they're buying heroin, a drug with which perhaps they're familiar and have some sort of tolerance to, but they're really getting fentanyl, which is much stronger, and then it's killing them. Now, fentanyl is a drug that can be legally prescribed by doctors, but 
here's where it gets weird. Most of the fentanyl killing drug users is not prescribed. It is made by ad hoc chemists from other countries and sent to the U.S. where it is packaged and sold as heroin, all on the black market. Although fentanyl is a drug prescribed by doctors, often in the form of time-release patches or for end-of-life care, what's really harming people the most is the fentanyl that's manufactured by, let's call them amateur chemists. Given these fundamental truths, although there are many pieces of it to clean up, we can have a coherent conversation about the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of the restrictions we're putting on pain pill prescribing. Our current method of curbing drug deaths is controlling access to drugs. Is that working? So the CDC thought they were taking a good crack at the problem, at least. They came out with guidelines in 2016. Um, What do those guidelines look like, and what effect would you say they had on the way doctors prescribe, and what effect then did this have on patients needing pain care? Well, these uh, guidelines are not supposed to be binding. Right. So in themselves, they have no legal authority. Um, they're just recommendations. That's officially right. But a couple of things happened. Uh, one is that, uh, they were made legally binding, but by certain legislatures. For example, Congress said the VA has to follow, uh, the CDC's recommendations. So whatever the CDC uh, says, in terms of how long a prescription should last or what the maximum daily dosage ought to be, uh, that is not what the VA is required to do. Um, then state legislators started copying, um, if not directly copying the CDC's recommendations, at least I'm sure it gave them an impetus to uh, pass these laws that impose limits on how long a prescription can last, um, how large a dose uh, people can get on a daily basis. Um, and uh, maybe even more more profoundly, uh, the fact that the CDC issued these guidelines tells doctors this is what you're supposed to be doing. Because the CDC yeah. is very authoritative um, from a doctor's point of view. The CDC says, you know, this is how we think you should be treating pain. Doctors do not take that lightly. They take that as I really should. If I'm going to be a good doctor, I have to do this. The regulators also take it, take it very seriously. Uh, and the criminal investigators, whether at the DEA or the state level or at the local level, they look at the CDC guidelines, and if they see uh, doctors deviating from them, that is a cause for suspicion. So now, and then once doctors see that it's a cause for suspicion, it just reinforces the idea that if you deviate from these guidelines, you are not practicing good medicine. Um, so in the end, it becomes uh, effectively uh, a mandate even though the CDC would say, oh, well, we never, you know, <laughs> this is yeah, not yeah. our intent. Um, but you see doctors across the country looking at, for example, the CDC's recommendation regarding uh, maximum daily dosage, uh, where they say, they don't, do not directly say you should never exceed this level, but they say it's very hard to justify, basically, exceeding this level. So uh, lots of oh, doctors, not just doctors, insurers, insurance companies may say the CDC says this is never appropriate to, to prescribe more than this, so we're certainly not going to cover it. Right? Yeah, yeah. All these coming to bear, um, and and so uh, you see across the country doctors interpreting this as a mandate and saying, guy, this this guy is on, he's getting twice as much as the CDC, CDC says should be the maximum. I got to cut him back. Um, 
And then, you know, the guy may, may have been doing perfectly well uh, with, with his pain well-managed for years, and he was functional, and he wasn't violating any rules or anything like that, and he had a job. And now you cut his dose in half, and he can't function anymore, and he's in bed. Uh, but at least, you know, you can plot <laughs> the CDC guideline, um, and, and you see this all over the country. And um, if you go back to the CDC and point this out, they will say, well, that was not our intent. We were not, we were not trying to get doctors to force these dose reductions on patients. Um, and, and we, in fact, we said you shouldn't do that. They didn't really say you shouldn't do that. The way they presented dose reductions as something you should aspire to and that they did present it as a um, consensual process um, by saying things like, well, if you have, you know, a patient who's been on a very high dose for, for a long time, you might want to talk to him about the possible dangers and discuss whether he'd like to reduce, reduce his dose and, and this kind of thing. So it's presented as, as if you're just, you know, raising a possibility with the patient and discussing it, and ultimately you and the patient together are going to decide. But in practice, what happens is that doctors impose these decisions on patients. Not all of them, but, but many doctors are just imposing these decisions. Um, and you have all these people who are suffering needlessly as a result. And like I said, some of them are killing themselves. To summarize, in 2016, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, created guidelines for doctors related to the prescribing of opioids the ostensible basis for the 12 guidelines was to improve communication between providers and patients about the risks versus the benefits of using opioids to treat chronic pain. But the guidelines, however helpful they were meant to be, or maybe however harmless they were intended to be, came into contact with America's raging narrative about pain pills, that they were overprescribed, that they caused addiction, that doctors should prescribe as few pain pills as possible, and that people already on pain pills should have their doses reduced or they should be taken off of them altogether. The idea being that our country's addiction and drug death problems could be solved if only we got our prescribing under control. The CDC guidelines were interpreted by powerful people. The recommendations became, you might say, weaponized and even taken out of context. There was pressure from lawmakers and insurance companies to curb prescribing and dosing limits by an arbitrary metric. These were numbers that resembled the numbers from the guidelines but were void of basic context, which you'll hear more about later in the episode. Now this put doctors in a position in many instances to behave in direct opposition to their Hippocratic Oath. This is the one and only area of medicine where, ubiquitously, there is no longer a negotiation between a doctor and his or her patient about what is the best quality of care for that patient. Doctors are now answering to what is interpreted as a mandate, and often is a mandate, to keep the patient away from opioid drugs, even if taking opioids would have been otherwise determined to be the very most reasonable course of action. Robert Rose is from Johnson County, Tennessee. He's 52. He has a bachelor's degree in social work, a master's in education, and he served in the United States Marine Corps. He's also in chronic, often excruciating pain. He has a constricted spinal vertebrae and severe damage to his ankles, feet, and knees, all injuries that he acquired while in the line of duty as a United States Marine. He's retired, discharged for medical reasons, but says he would still be active if only he could. Robert Rose has but one reasonable request for doctors from his local Veterans Administration, he would like them to 
please treat his pain. My name is Robert V. Rose, Jr. I'm a United States Marine. In 1991, the most serious of my injuries occurred when I fell from a cliff in the Mediterranean. God saw fit to tell me not yet. And so I did not drown, I did not dry, uh, die. But those injuries to my spine left a lasting impression on my life. A couple of years later, in a dog and pony show at Camp Lejeune, I busted up my knees and my ankles. Those were the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. And I was put out of the Marine Corps because of my injuries. Now, I had gone many years just dealing with the pain. I did the traction, I did the massage therapy, I did the yoga, I did the focused imagery, all that stuff. But finally, at some point, those things no longer worked, and I broke down and agreed with Dr. Coyer, I believe, that uh, I'd give pain meds a try. God, what a relief. I should have uh, been taking them while I was doing the alternative therapies. Now, I did not get high off the drugs. I still felt the pain. I still knew the pain was there. I still knew my limitations. But I was able to work through it. I was able to go to uh, work as a school teacher. I had a Spanish club that did all kinds of community service projects. We sent aid packages uh, to the military, to China, to Honduras. Uh, we adopted an orphanage. In other words, I lived my life. Robert Rose told me there is no question that taking opioid painkillers did far more good than harm in his life while he was taking them. Before taking pain pills, Rose struggled to complete daily tasks. And though he's always been driven, self-sufficient, and able to support himself and his family, he welcomed his dose of pain medication, which he took responsibly. I'm a Marine. I lived my life to the fullest that I could and dealt with the pain later. My wife and my sons suffered because of it, but at the same time, I was able to coach Little League, I was a Cub Scout leader. I took my son on camping trips. I took my sons on uh, boating trips, canoe trips. But later, I would pay for it. Once I was put on pain medications, it was much easier to do the things that I wanted to do. In October 2016, I got a phone call from a nurse practitioner, Christina Kraft. I had never met this individual. I'd never spoken to this individual before. She said because of the VA's new policy to deny 90% of all veterans, elderly, cancer patients, and the disabled all pain medications, that she's going to have to taper me to zero. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't do that. Have you looked at my charts? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the healthy back of any other 50-year-old American male. Uh... Three 60-milligram tablets of morphine sulfate daily. 
So 180 milligrams of morphine sulfate a day. So my spine, I've got compression fractures in the cervical, the thoracic, and the lumbar region. I have spinal stenosis, degenerative disc disease, scoliosis. I have bilateral radiculopathy to the cervical region. That's the uh, nerve damage to the neck and shoulders. I have nerve damage in the lumbar region to both legs, bilateral. And she's telling me that every other 50-year-old American male has these conditions. <laughs> Just mind-blowing. Then she refused to set up an appointment. I had to go through the uh, acting director of Mountain Home VA here in Johnson City. Just get an appointment to meet with this woman. And finally did on October 15th. She said again about the denied 90% of all veterans, all pain medications. She refused to look at the documentation I had brought uh, clearly indicating what was wrong with my spine and stuff. And she refused to provide a copy of the memo or the order or the directive that stated that she had to do this. At the end of the month, toward uh, the end of October, her supervisor, a Dr. Kreider, who I had also never met, put in my records that I was non-compliant to the pain contract that I had signed. In all the years, I had never refused a drug screen, even though I had to urinate in front of women because they didn't have man texts available. I never messed up on a pill count because I took my meds as prescribed, and he put this in my record as the reason that they were denying me pain medication. You heard him correctly. He was mandated to sign what's called a pain contract, a written pain treatment agreement in which the patient and the physician will supposedly agree to various conditions under which opioids will be prescribed or discontinued, as if the patient has a choice. I found it hard to believe that any patient, but especially someone like Robert Rose, a Marine veteran who had just been injured in combat, serving his country, would be treated in some of the ways that he described. But he actually never complained about signing pain contracts or needing to take urine screens in front of females or needing to do regular pill counts to make sure he wasn't abusing his pills. Rose only pushed back when he was forced to taper from a dose that seemed to work for him at the time with little reasonable explanation. Indeed, this tapering of dose was starting to diminish his well-being. November... Uh, first, to December 29th, they took me from 180 milligrams a day to zero. My last dose was on November or December 29th, 2016. December 15th, Dr. Hendricks, after meeting with me for 15 minutes, he uh, is a psychiatrist in charge of the uh, psychiatric department there. After meeting with me for 15 minutes, he determined that I was a, uh, I suffered from opioid use disorder and opioid dependence disorder. And it forced his subordinate that I'd been meeting with for years that never had a problem with me to put in my record that I suffered from opioid dependence disorder. 
So now, with that entry from Dr. Hendricks and that entry from Dr. Kreider, the NUPAS PCP, uh, primary care provider, refused to provide any type of pain relief. Dr. Hendricks wanted to give me Suboxone, which is uh, for pain, which is not legal in the state of Tennessee uh, to prescribe it for pain. He also wanted me to go to the inpatient alcohol and drug rehab facility in Florida. I'm not an addict. Why do I have to go to a rehab facility? Later on, a Dr. Edwards, um, he also wanted to prescribe Suboxone. My last dose of uh, pain medicine was December 29th, right? In May, they drug tested me. My system was clean, nothing, because I will not um, disrespect my Marines or law enforcement. I will not go to the street. But they drug tested me in May, and guess what? It was clean. November 29th, 2016, my blood pressure was through the ceiling. I was in excruciating pain. I was having chest pains. I was having difficulty breathing. I went to the emergency room at the VA. I requested to record what the doctor said. They said that was illegal, that I could not do it. They called the cops on me. The cops came in, threatened to throw my ass in the back of a squad car and carry me to Greenville to the Federal Detention Center. I did turn off the uh, recorder and they kept going on and on, yelling at me and stuff. I finally decided that it would be in my best interest to leave. I stood up to get into my wheelchair and passed out. I woke up on a backboard in excruciating pain. They would not release it. They would not uh, loosen the straps binding me down. I was crying. I was screaming out in pain. Finally, uh, Dr. Suzanne Allen gave me, I think, four milligrams of morphine injection, I think. It wasn't very much. They finally released the board. She apologized to me and said that she was going to have to discharge me because there's nothing more that she could do because of the policy to stop uh, opioid use. If you're anything like me, you shed a tear after listening to the torment this man went through. It's frightening to imagine how a less conscientious, or maybe a less self-sufficient person may have handled themselves in such a situation. When I hung up the phone with Robert Rose, I became emotional. A mix of sadness and rage, which I struggled to place. It was tempting to cast blame on doctors for treating their patients this way. But that didn't seem like the right idea as if there was an American physician conspiracy to do ultimate harm. So I decided to talk to some doctors to hear their thoughts on the subject. It turns out it's not just pain patients who oppose the CDC guidelines and the policies that have followed, and it's not that doctors necessarily take pride in limiting prescriptions. Many doctors themselves are affected by this change in attitudes and policies toward the prescribing of pain pills. In my search for reasonable physicians, I was lucky enough to encounter Dr. Stefan Kertes, a physician on faculty at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I um, grew up in California, went to medical school in Boston, and took a job at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program as a 
new primary care doctor in 1996, I was really interested in thinking about how to deliver good primary care for a vulnerable population like people who are homeless. And I did some academic training with research as part of that where I wound up looking at addiction issues in the population that I'd been taking care of. So starting around 2000 or so, I did studies, um, mostly analyses of other people's studies, looking at addiction treatment outcomes, housing outcomes, patterns of drug use in people who are homeless. And then later I did similar work in young adults, looking at a large database of adults who use drugs or do, and some who don't to figure out what are the likely outcomes of illicit drug use in general population adults. But I always stuck to care of underserved populations, and I wound up with a job at the Boston, um, actually the Birmingham VA Medical Center, where I'm involved in doing research on homeless health care and housing, working in a homeless primary care program that I helped set up, uh, and serving on our Veterans Administration Opioid Safety Initiative Committee, and an opioid advice team that tries to look at some of the more difficult cases that come up. And so I've wound up uh, developing a pretty strong interest in how we um, deal with the challenge of pain and potential use of opioids for pain or how to handle that question when there's also a history of addiction in the patients that we're taking care of. To be cautious, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, has made recommendations to pain prescribers. So we'll start there. What do you think about these recommendations? Helpful or no? I rather like, I, I most, let's put it this way, I mostly like the recommendations that the CDC put together as they were written, but not as they were weaponized. And unfortunately, there's now a pretty wide dichotomy between what the CDC guidelines says and how physicians are practicing and indeed even how um, the CDC itself is messaging its own guideline. So on the one hand, you know, to talk technically about the CDC guideline as written, I think it is a helpful corrective to the problem that we had gotten into, which was um, not monitoring opioids very carefully. I don't think doctors were routinely using them as a first-line therapy, but they were prescribed a lot. Oftentimes, people who didn't need any opioid or just maybe one or two pills were getting a bottle. Um, and people who were cruising along on high doses weren't getting carefully reevaluated to determine, hey, how is this really working out for you? And the guideline basically says opioids should rarely, if ever, be the first option in the care of chronic pain. And if you start a new patient on opioids, you should be particularly cautious when you consider going above uh, certain dose thresholds. We can have a long argument about how to calculate the dose, but you know, be you know, particularly careful when you make that kind of decision. Really consider other options for care of chronic pain because pills alone simply don't resolve what we're dealing with very often. And then finally, for the patient who's already on opioids for chronic pain, the uh, CDC's guidelines says, carefully evaluate the current benefits that the patient is obtaining from that treatment and the current harms that you can observe in that patient. And if the benefits don't exceed the harms, they say you should work with the patient to taper. Um, I would say at the very least, work with the patient to reevaluate what you're doing and consider um, either taper or a lot closer monitoring or switching to a different opioid like buprenorphine. All those things might be reasonable to do. 
very little of that is actually happening right now. We're in a whole different terrain, unfortunately. So despite some reasoned advice from the CDC, as you described it, that sounds like there's nothing wrong with that. It's reasonable. But our hysteria around what we call the opioid epidemic seems to drive policy around clinical practice instead of policies being driven by data. And this makes for some predictable and rather unwanted outcomes all stemming from these attempts to curtail prescriptions, right? Absolutely. So I've been thinking about that a lot. So, you know, if what do I see among clinicians and what do I see in my inbox and what do I see patients posting in response to the columns I've written? Well, what I see is people telling stories of essentially they were stable on a given dose of medication um, as best they knew. And their doctors basically say, I'm afraid. I have a fear about my license now. Um, I've got to get you off these things. And or um, sometimes it's done in the guise of motivational interviewing where patients often feel it's not so much motivational but manipulational and kind of taken through a series of standardized talking points where they're told essentially, you see now the best thing for you to do is to go through a dose reduction or a dose taper and that will be what's best. And that isn't really what the CDC guideline says But some of the messaging that came from, well, that comes from many directions in our society right now, basically creates the sense that if you are a doctor who's writing prescriptions for opioids at this point, you are no better than a a drug dealer. In fact, there's actually a book titled Drug Dealer MD. Um, I have a sense that the author is way more thoughtful than that book title, but it, 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 that very much echoes a kind of flavor right now. And the boards, boards of medicine are, anxious that every prescription is now perceived as causing or perpetuating a obvious and severe social crisis. Legislators are um, increasingly focused on the idea that if, th- if these prescriptions played a role in setting off the problem, and on that I agree, um, well, by gosh, if we can just make the number go down enough, the problem of addiction will be solved. And even Um, The CDC's leadership last June came out with a report on the number of prescriptions issued, and the the headline item was, number has gone down but not far enough. And the implication is, you know, the solution lies when that number goes down. And it really sets aside the particular content of the CDC guideline. And when I said earlier, it's been weaponized, what I mean is that regulatory agencies and pharmacy benefits plans take a few numbers out of the guideline and essentially demand that those uh, typically dose numbers and basically say, let's make a fixed rule based on some numbers in the guideline. Let's forget all that nice verbiage about carefully weighing risk and benefit and just hold you to a standard which says, don't prescribe as much, take the doses down, and whatever happens, happens. Um, And that's not evidence-based and it's certainly not patient-centered. Something you've done beautifully is inform people about uh, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, the NCQA, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, CMS. Will you talk about these agencies? I'm deep into your work now, as you you may have gathered. Sure. um, And how their involvements have affected the way doctors prescribe. Yeah, both are really helpful because in both instances, you're looking at what I'm going to assume are very well-intended agencies trying to show... Uh, awareness of opioid safety 
um, adopting steps that actually could put patients at severe risk of, you know, not just harm, but losing their lives mm. and doing so in the name of solving the problem of our opioid crisis. So the National Committee for Quality Assurance is an agency that sets up measurements, uh, things that you measure to decide if care by an organization or a provider is good or bad. And these are things used in business, they're used in managed care, and they put forward a set of draft measures in, I think, February or March that said, look, we've, we have found four measures to assess quality of care related to opioids, which we've taken from another agency called Pharmacy Quality Alliance. Three of them are basically trying to figure out how many patients in your panel or in your health plan are going to multiple pharmacies and multiple doctors to get their opioids. Mm -hmm. And all three of those are kind of on face pretty concerning. Um, there are reasons that people might do that, but you know, at first pass, you'd think, yeah, I guess the higher that number is, you better be concerned. The fourth number is, what's the number of patients you have who receive opioids at a calculated dose greater than 120 milligrams of morphine, hmm. the equivalent of that? And um, if, you know, in, in, in the higher, the worse, you know, a high number is bad. Well, to the extent that doctors might be looking at starting opioids on some patients and would like to exercise caution in raising the dose, I tend to be favorably disposed toward that. Um, there probably are patients where certain pain experts would make the case that very high doses are needed. And I don't have the expertise to argue that case either way. But that's pretty rare. Um, and most patients currently, and relatively, you know, most patients don't wind up at super high doses. But once you set up a quality metric that's a sort of binary, the, the higher yeah. number of people you have over 120, the worse. There is one single incentive it creates, and that is to take people's doses down against their will so that you can make your healthcare organization look better. Yeah. That's the only way to rapidly change the apparent performance of the organization. And that step, that action, is, has never been tested in randomized controlled trials. There was a review published in June or actually July that said we have no data on such a mandate or such programs, what outcomes they would yield. Uh, patients who anecdotally, and anecdotes are just anecdotes, but I have a lot of anecdotes, both from personal observation and from uh, cases that I hear about from colleagues, of patients who've been forced to have their doses go down in response to this kind of imperative and then have been rendered either suicidal, emotionally volatile, or they've had worse pain, or they have attempted to treat that volatility by securing illicit drugs, including illicit opioids, cocaine, alcohol, and even had overdoses in response to that change in their care. And that's kind of, and, and that sort of um, outcome to me seems very much the opposite of what we were trying yeah. to accomplish. This NCQA, luckily, to their credit, asked for uh, comments. Now, I don't know if they're going to take the comments seriously, uh, but they at least opened the door for people to weigh in before they made a decision. Dr. Kertes has gone above and beyond to advocate for patient rights in the most diplomatic way anybody could. He's already overloaded with inpatient ward attending and grant applications and for a few different jobs. That is... He already has a stormy day job, of which this is no part. Despite that, he spends the few spare moments of his life that he has talking to me, various other interviewers, flying across the country to give presentations, writing articles, 
all to do his part to ensure that chronic pain patients are being treated humanely. He's noticed that, by and large, doctors do see what's happening, though they're put in a terrible position to have to negotiate between what's best for their career or to do what they know is right for their patients. And for what? Yes, we prescribed a lot in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. Too much. Partly because we didn't have a standard of care that trained doctors to deal with the community and social and psychological aspects of addiction. Well, simply cutting doses may help some people, though it's not completely evident that's true. But it is certainly hurting many patients who would otherwise benefit from prescription opioids. That is true. Robert Rose is an example. Doctors themselves, like Dr. Kertes, are harmed by measures of arbitrary cuts to prescribing limits, as they actually have this unique honor of being blamed for a problem and being asked to solve it, all while they're worried for their jobs on the one hand and worried for their patients on the other. Let's reflect. How do we even begin to slow rates of death? It's a complicated question, but one thing we know we cannot do is harm more people along the way. And we might just be. I'm going to leave that until next time in Episode 3, Pain Patience. Building on the experience of Robert Rose, We'll hear from more experts and chronic pain patients themselves about their experiences with prescription drugs. And we'll hear more from experts about how we may begin to tackle the problem, how we can truly begin to save lives. More next time on the Social Exchange podcast series, Where the Story Meets Pain. Again, today was Episode 2, Drug Deaths. Please tune in next week for Episode 3, pain patients.